With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, with USA-Mexico looming this week, five U.S. men's national team figures talk about the history of the Dos Acero games, including Landon Donovan, who explains what Columbus, Ohio has come to mean to this storied rivalry. I think what happened is Columbus was the first soccer-specific stadium in this country, so by default, it became our home field. And I think over the years, fans realized that they could make this a real home field environment. All that and more coming up. This is a special podcast where I spend a few minutes talking to one figure from each of the five Dos Acero games over the years, featuring Bruce Arena, Brian McBride, Claudia Reyna, Michael Bradley, and Landon Donovan. We'll start with Arena on 2001, the first Dos Acero in Columbus, when bitterly cold temperatures in February caused Mexican journalists to dub this game La Guerra Fria, the Cold War. The U.S. starting lineup for 2001, Brad Friedel, David Regie, Jeff Agus, Eddie Pope, Tony Santa, Kobe Jones, Chris Armas, Claudio Reyna, Ernie Stewart, Brian McBride, and Joe Max Moore. Bruce Arena, who was the coach of that U.S. men's national team, thanks for joining me, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be on, Grant. So I've got a lot of questions here, but I want to start because this was the first Columbus game of this series between the USA and Mexico. What do you remember about how the decision was made to play this game in Columbus? Well, you know, I, I was in, in my position for probably a little over two years with U.S. soccer. And, and uh, at the time, I, I think we were still trying to find ourselves in, in, in terms of the competitive part of World Cup qualifying in CONCACAF and and I really urged them that we needed to find the venue that would give our team an advantage and uh, naturally they wanted the LA Coliseum type of venue where <laughs> we'd get 90,000 paying customers and do wonderful things for the budget for the year but uh, over a short period of time I was able to convince uh, both Dan Flynn and I, I believe it was Bob Contagulli at the time that we we should look at another venue, and, and and I wanted one that I felt would give us an advantage, and my strong su- suggestion was Columbus, and, you know, we talked with the people at Columbus, and eventually were able to twist 
their arms to, to put on the game and believe that they could do it in February in Columbus and, and convince U.S. soccer. And, and obviously, as we know today, uh, uh, that happened and it's become a great venue for this really intense rivalry. So I was at the game that night. It was cold, really cold. And my sense, my recollection, having viewed the this game again, is that it kind of got in the heads of some of the the Mexico players with their media calling it La Guerra Fria, the Cold War. What do you remember about that aspect, the cold that night, and how it impacted the game? Well, I think after we got going, it didn't, but I think uh, pregame it did. I'm not even sure if the Mexicans came out and warmed up. I can't Mm -hmm. recall exactly, but I know that certainly one thing that we did have is we had a home field advantage. And even in my early going with World Cup qualifying, then wherever we played in the United States, uh, it tended to be a, a crowd favoring our opponent, whether it was Guatemala or Honduras or Costa Rica. But this night, we had a home field advantage. We had conditions that were certainly challenging for both teams, but but arguably more conducive to the U.S. team. And I think at kickoff, we felt good about things. However, I don't think we had a great first half. And I, I thought the Mexicans played well. We had a bunch of injuries. So it wasn't, uh, you know, when the whistle blew, everything was in favor of the U.S. team. The, uh, the Mexicans w- were ready to play despite the conditions. And they really gave us everything we could deal with in the first half. Well, in that first half, you know, it was 0-0 at halftime. Uh, you had to make two substitutions due to injuries. Brian McBride uh, took a, a head to right above his right eye, which swelled up huge, had to come out of the game about 14 minutes into the game. Uh, Josh Wolf comes on and ends up making a big impact eventually. And then Claudio Reyna has to come off in the 43rd minute of the first half for Clinton Mathis, who also would end up making an impact pretty rare to have to make two subs in the first half. How did that impact things for you? Well, it was certainly challenging. You know, uh, we not only lost two players, but we lost two key players in, in, in uh, the veterans and Claudio and, and Brian McBride. And uh, our guys handle it well. And we brought in, at the time, two relatively inexperienced players at the, at the international level in, in Josh Wolf and uh, Clint Mathis. And, and as we know, they both came through with Josh getting the first goal and Clint being part of that. And then, you know, both players just playing very well in the second half to, uh, you know, help us secure the win. So uh, I, I give the team a lot of credit. No, nothing impacted them that day. They, they were well-focused and ready to go. And we obviously had a great crowd in the stadium that day and and the Columbus crew did a terrific job in getting the venue ready for this game and and you know I think it was the start of some important things for U.S. soccer in terms of how we were going to stand up and say you know we're going to be the best in this region and we're going to challenge Mexico and Costa Rica and Honduras and Guatemala etc etc so I think it was a it was the start of some great things for U.S. soccer. Now, when I look at the context heading into this game in terms of the games that the U.S. had played against Mexico under you as the coach, uh, there had been in 99 a 2-1 U.S. Cup loss in San Diego. There had been the 99 Confederations Cup semifinal, uh, finally won after extra time, one nothing uh, by Mexico. June of 2000, there had been 
a U.S. 3-0 win in the Meadowlands in the U.S. Cup against a team that wasn't really Mexico's A squad. And then October 2000, there had been a friendly win for the U.S. in the L.A. Coliseum, 2-0, Landon Donovan's first career goal for the U.S. in that game. But at that point, like the previous home World Cup qualifier in 1997, the U.S. had not won that game up in Foxborough. Did this game mentally give the U.S. something that maybe it didn't have before because it was such an important game against Mexico? Well, I think it was just the start of us having a mindset that we we could not only beat Mexico, but we were going to be the best team in the region. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you see in all sports, sometimes there's uh, uh, matchups that you have with opponents that it becomes a bit of a psychological block. So it was certainly crucial that at some point we were going to beat Mexico in a game that meant something. And this was certainly the day. And I think since that day, uh, I really don't believe Mexico over the next six or seven years had any kind of edge on the U.S. Now, the specific goals in that game, early in the second half, Mathis gets the ball in midfield, Josh Wolf, who had a fair amount of speed, takes off. Mathis puts it into space, and Jorge Campos comes out, maybe too far. I don't know what your take was on that, but but Wolf gets to it, gets past Campos, and finishes in the open goal. What was your sense? What, what were your recollections of that goal? And did Campos take too big of a risk? Well, Campos obviously uh, didn't time the play right, but you know, you know, for Josh to have that kind of composure to finish off the play, get around him, and and, and finish it off. Uh, we've seen players in the past not be able to do that. So it was just a huge goal and give Josh and, and Clint a lot of credit. And, uh, you know, as we know, watching Jorge over the years, he was a bit of a risk taker and he took a, a bit of a risk that day and got burned for it. And then the final goal in the 87th minute uh, gets it to the Dos Acero score that we've seen so many times since then. Ernie Stewart finishes after Josh Wolf made a really nice play on the ball to evade a couple of Mexican defenders in the corner and then feed it to Stewart. You know, that, that was a good goal. I don't know what other response you might have had to it. Well, any time Ernie scored a goal for the U.S. team, I felt great about it because he was such an important leader on our team. And he worked so hard and gave us so much quality over the years and on that day it was a, it was another typical Ernie Stewart performance and the cap it off of the goal in the 87th minute was fabulous so you know let, let's face it it was the start of a, a rivalry now that's uh, going to even be greater uh, this November when they play again in Columbus it's a uh, you know it, it it's been fabulous and 15 years later it, it's still going to be as intense as it was that night and it should be a tremendous game. Can you remember anything from that night in 01 that maybe wasn't public, any kind of specific, interesting, or cool story that stands out for you experiencing that night? Uh, nothing real crazy, but I, I, first of all, we, we went in that game uh, thinking we were going to win. So we, we, weren't, we didn't walk off the field surprised that we won. We, we, we had a mindset that we were going to win that game. I do remember everybody telling me how cold it was that day, and I wasn't cold. That's the <laughs> one thing I remember. I think, and that was like, I think we we were all so focused, and it was such an intense 90 minutes for us. Nothing bothered us, and I think that was uh, the attitude our players had. And uh, I remember my wife telling me how cold it was, and this and that, and uh, and 
to me, it, it seemed like uh, another day uh, for me as a, an East Coast guy in the winter, and it didn't didn't bother me at all. And um, I, obviously, it was it was a very special day for U.S. soccer. Now I'm going to be talking to other people, other players about the 2002 game, the 2005 game. You were involved in all of those. Did you take anything out of that night in 01 in terms of your game plan? strategies for future games against Mexico? Yeah, I think our formula for success against the Mexicans each and every game is is not to give them any time in the ball and, and match up with them and get after them uh, from the opening whistle uh, till the final whistle. And, and our tactics in all the rivalries after that was that we were going to get after them. Mm-hmm. Understand how they were going to play formation-wise, who their players were, and we were going to get in their faces. And, and that's the way we approached uh, uh, playing Mexico most of the time. Bruce Arena, thanks for taking the time to speak to the Planet Football Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. The 2002 USA-Mexico game was a special one, taking place in the World Cup Round of 16 in Jeonju, South Korea. But the result was another 2-0 for the United States. Brian McBride joins me to talk about that landmark day. The U.S. starting lineup for 2002 Brad Friedel, Greg Berhalter, Eddie Pope, Tony Sane, Pablo Mastroeni, Eddie Lewis, Claudio Reyna, John O'Brien, Landon Donovan, Brian McBride, and Josh Wolf. Thanks for joining me, Brad. Hey, Grant. This has been a lot of fun for me talking to people about each of the Dos Acero games. There's nothing bigger than the World Cup, though, and this Dos Acero was special. USA-Mexico, John Ju, South Korea, 2002 round of 16 game. And before we talk about the game itself, I want to ask you a little bit about sort of the context heading into that game. So the, sure. the U.S. had finished second in its group to advance, but in a weird way with a disappointing 3-1 loss to Poland in the final group stage game. And you drew your arch rival in a World Cup elimination game. What were you, your thoughts heading into that game? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, I think. Um when we lost to Poland, we uh, it was a weird one because, in all sense of purposes, the other game in in our group, which was South Korea Portugal, you could you know you could understand those teams talking at halftime because it was zero zero at half, just mm-hmm. saying okay, you know what, we're both through, let's continue on this path and and no worries. Mm-hmm. But uh, the integrity that South Korea showed um, allowed us to get through, mm-hmm. which. Then we found out we were playing Mexico, and I think our our mindset changed because we'd had so many good results uh, against Mexico anytime we were away, away from uh, from Azteca mm-hmm. that um, yeah I think we we just had this this positivity that really was was throughout the team and the tournament, but it just um, you know coming off a loss you would think that we'd have some doubt, but we didn't the, the whole group was. Was very positive and looking forward to the game. You mentioned South Korea's integrity. I, I, I should mention this. Park Ji Sung will forever be an American hero for scoring late <laughs> against Portugal to send Portugal out of the tournament and let the U.S. into this game. Just a, an incredible scene. I was in the stadium that night, and I wasn't even watching the U.S. game in front of me at that point. I was just watching the television in front of me showing South Korea-Portugal. You know, yeah, just, I mean, we at the time I, I had been subbed out. We we're all on the bench and we we're pretty dejected. And then all of a sudden, there was just murmur 
throughout the crowd. And we, we start looking in the stands, and people in the stands were, were, you know, Americans in the stands were cheering. We're like, oh, my gosh, South Korea must have just scored. <laughs> so, yeah, I get chills just thinking about it still. Uh, I mean, so you get the reprieve, you come into this game, and Bruce Arena decides to come out in a surprise 3-5-2 formation that Mexico was definitely not expecting. Were you yourself surprised a little bit by that U.S. lineup? You know, I think when Bruce was deciding on doing it, it, it all seemed so different. The fact that Claudio would be out wide right, mm-hmm. that was new. But by this time, we had just su- such belief in the group. And, you know, going back to camp when we first got our, our draw for the, the group stage, Every time we came in, Bruce would say, you know, we're going to beat Portugal. We're going to beat Portugal. And then we beat Portugal. And it, it just, the, the belief in, in the team and, and what Bruce was doing and, and fully getting behind it, I think, uh, came pretty much immediately, just throwing a little wrinkle at him and, and knowing that we could defend in that, in that scenario and drop down, uh, sometimes playing five at the back and really try and hit him on, uh, on the counter. Yeah, it was it was different for sure, but everybody bought into it right away. So very early in this game, in the first ten minutes, uh, Claudio Reyna makes a run down the right side from this unfamiliar wide right position that he's been playing. How do you see that play and that goal that you scored develop from your perspective? Well, there's a foul, and you know I was right there, and I was gonna you know put the ball down and and just go up and you know, as we would play the ball long and try and get on the end of it. And I just heard Claudio screaming, play me, play me. And so it was a pretty easy decision. You see your captain running at full speed. Uh, All you got to do is touch him the ball. So as soon as I played the ball to him, you could see Claudio uh, knew exactly what he was going to be doing. Wolfie was was up top already. So he was going to end up crossing the ball. So I, I wanted to try and make the box. And Claudio picks out Wolfie. Uh, Wolfie, you know, normally you'd stop your run uh, right around the near post, but he kept going. Uh, ball laid into to Wolfie. He's way past the near post. Um, by this time, I had made the box, and nobody was really around me. Wolfie saw me, just lays this perfectly weighted pass with the outside of his right foot. And, you know, at this time, now I can, I got the whole picture in front of me. I can see where the goalie is. I can see where the defenders are. And uh, I tried to pick my spot and hit it with as much power, but placement over power, but still get enough behind it and um, just came off. And obviously a great start to the game. How did that impact the rest of the game, do you think, the way the U.S. played it? Yeah, I think it, it woke Mexico up a little bit. Uh, you know, they they thought they were going to, coast through this they won their group uh, we sort of trickle in with help from South Korea and I think mentally they they were they were thinking that this was going to be a waltz to them so um, they picked it up but it just meant then that we had to defend a lot harder and to the credit of the guys you know we, we had the game plan that Bruce had set out and we understood that this was probably going to be a situation where we didn't have a lot of the ball which is pretty normal back then in games against Mexico. So um, they probably they probably shell-shocked him a bit. They did make a first-half substitution, non-injury substitution, which 
at least from my perspective, was sort of an admission from Javier Aguirre, the Mexican manager, that he'd been caught off guard, I would say outcoached in a sense, and needed to make an adjustment. Did you get the sense that that Mexico was trying to, to search for a way to, to they need to do, to do something drastic like that? Yeah, I mean, we sort of took it as they, they were trying, they were searching for answers. Mm-hmm. And so that, that substitution being a more offensive one, we knew that, that uh, yeah, like I said, they're a bit rattled. You could see their frustration, and uh, it just gave us more energy. So the U.S. takes the one nothing lead into the half. Uh, there's a couple hairy moments. Brad Friedel pushes a shot off the crossbar. Uh, the ball's in the U.S. end a fair amount. Uh, John O'Brien has what could have been called maybe a handball in the box, but was not, as you sometimes see, not called. And then Landon Donovan scores a pretty good goal to go up 2 nothing. And that play started with Eddie Lewis pushing down the left side. Uh, what are your recollections of that goal? Yeah, you know, as soon as you saw Eddie running down the left flank with plenty of time to serve a ball and Landon making that run into the penalty area. I was, again, probably just a little bit behind Landon. And, you know, Eddie Lewis can serve a ball Mm -hmm. uh, as good as anybody. And so as soon as you saw Landon free uh, and Eddie just hit the ball, it was just, you knew it was going to be number two. But it was, you know, that was one of the, the most unique things about that whole 2002 World Cup is that Everybody was a part of of the success. You know, mm-hmm. you, you talk about Brad's uh, play and the in the goal was phenomenal. You know, Tony Senna had a great tournament. Mm-hmm. It just people really felt they were a part of a group of something special. So um, when that second one went in, it was it was just magical in the sense that they knew you could see Mexico knew that this is probably over. Mm-hmm. And from that, things started getting a little chippy. <laughs> so that leads us to Rafa Marquez, who had a history in this, these USA-Mexico games of losing his head and doing rash things, getting a red card for first kicking Kobe Jones in the back when they're both airborne, and then on the same play spearing him with his head with the ball nowhere close. Instant automatic red card, essentially. What was your sense of what happened there and, and what Marquez did? Well, first was concerned to make sure Kobe's okay. Yeah. Uh, as soon as Kobe popped up, it was just the, the confirmation that they realized that the determination that we had set about was going to be unbreakable. Mm-hmm. And so they were trying to, to break us physically. So mm-hmm. um, I think Kobe's got popped up and started laughing and it just sort of epitomized what um what we really wanted to go about mm-hmm. and um you know prove that that we deserved uh, to go on and not that Mexico was a bad team but like you talked about before Bruce outcoached them and and we were able to execute a game plan now before i get to just one question on the the quarterfinal uh, because that was a big moment uh, in U.S. soccer. After this Mexico game, after the U.S. has beaten its arch rival in a World Cup, which is going to be pretty yeah. hard to trump for Mexico, 
in, unless the two teams ever meet in a World Cup elimination game again. There was a moment where the two buses outside the stadium passed each other and stopped, as I'm told. Like what? And there was some taunting going on. What do you remember from that? <laughs> well, it, it was certainly, um, I think it was built up because, you know, of course you saw what Ralph, Rafa Marquez did to Kobe. But even after the game, you know, listen, it, it's a sport. And certainly, um, you know, you can't take it beyond uh, what it should be. And sportsmanship should, should always be there. But um, they didn't want to shake hands. They didn't want to trade, trade jerseys, which, okay, you know, it's fine. But you add all of those parts together, and it, it just seemed like they were being disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when the bus is pulled up next to him, uh, Kobe, of course, taking a, a large brunt of the physical side, Kobe and Ernie were, were roommates and always just bubbly and energetic. And, you know, Ernie's laugh and smile was something that you'd always feel good about when you, you were a part of. Well, they, they get up, we're cranking the music and just start dancing and there's probably some taunting coming from them at the bus and yeah we just had we had a we had a great time we were enjoying the victory (laughs) i like the image good stuff so i I do want to ask because obviously that got you to the quarterfinal where the u.s ended up basically outplaying germany and losing one nothing and probably that was the high watermark in the modern era of the u.s men's national team when you look back at that world cup you know, what do you think about that team? What made it special? And, and could it have gone, that U.S. team, even farther? Gosh, yeah. uh, you know, people ask me, what's your most favorite memory um, about soccer? And I always say it's the 2002 World Cup. Mm-hmm. And it really is because that from 98 to 2002, the difference is it felt like a family. And it felt like a family because of what sort of Bruce implemented throughout the group. Certainly, Bruce implemented uh, the belief that we can win any game. And then that it's a family atmosphere. So, you know, our wives got to to stay in the same hotel. The families were around um, before and after games. And that brought everybody closer. And that bond that he created... Uh, was something that was felt throughout. So, you know, the wives would all be getting together. The couples throughout would you know, go off and have dinners. and It just felt like you were, you were all one, and you were all fighting for the same thing. You know, it wasn't where somebody was, was playing for a contract or someone was trying to, you know, um, improve their, their situation with, with the national team. The goal was... It just felt like the goal was always the same thing, which was getting as far as possible as a team. So on and off the field, it was it was a pretty special and remarkable. Well, very cool. Great stuff. Brian McBride, thanks for talking to the Planet Football Podcast. Thanks for having me, Grant. The 2005 USA-Mexico game in Columbus gave the U.S. a new opportunity, the chance to win and clinch a World Cup berth against its arch-rival. Claudio Reyna joins me to talk about it. The U.S. starting lineup for 2005, Casey Keller, Frankie Haydick, Oguchi Onyewu, Greg Berhalter, Eddie Lewis, Steve Ralston, Claudio Reyna, Chris Armas, Demarcus Beasley, Landon Donovan, and Brian McBride. Claudio, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Grant. 
So we're being very focused here. We're talking about this 2005 game against Mexico. You obviously played in nearly all of the games that we're talking about in this podcast. Uh, so I appreciate you focusing on on this one. The circumstances heading into this game, which was September 3rd, 2005 in Columbus, Ohio, and the U.S. was in a situation where it could clinch a berth in World Cup 2006 with a win against arch-rival Mexico. What do you remember at all about the lead-in to that game? Well, as always, it's Mexico, and it's a huge game, an important game. There's that extra bit of focus that you can sense from the moment the squad gathers in camp, from the coaching staff all the way down to the, you know, the support staff, all the players. You just can't wait for it. Those, those are really the games. I mean, every game I play with the national team uh, are special, but when you play Mexico, your bitter rival, you, you, you can't wait. At home, you want to take care of business as well because qualifying is, is very challenging, and that was, in my career, the one time I remember that we could wrap it up and, and, and get it over with and, and, and take a deep breath because many times I went down to the ninth or tenth game in, in the hexagonal. But we felt good. We, you know, we had, uh, we had our, our experience in a group from the 2002 World Cup. There's great competition for places. So it was, it was you know, as always, some new guys come into the team, but we had that base from 2002 still. Guys had, had, had now come to age a little bit more, the Landins and DeMarcus Beasley, Gooch Onyewu as well. And, um, you know, exciting game. It was, it was a really good game. It was really tough. I do remember that it was a bit choppy in the beginning, the mm-hmm. way we started the game. Um, they had a couple of chances and... Casey, I think, was in goal that game yes. off the top of my head, and he he came up big as as they usually do our goalkeepers, and 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 then from then on we played a really good solid game. Mexico is always you, you have to respect their attack, the players they have all the time. They have creative players, they have players who can who can uh, open you up in midfield and have uh, good passing ranges and 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 make the difference. And you know we we in the second half we came out of it and and scored a couple of goals and. But more than anything, we, we wanted to take care of business. For the guys that were in Europe, you know, it's one less trip back. Right. Uh, so we had that opportunity and, and you know, we, we took care of it. And, and the support in Columbus is, was amazing. And, and to be able to qualify in front of those fans, did it again later, going back to this most recent World Cup. Mm-hmm. It's something special about playing in Columbus. It is the home of, it is, I think, our, our national stadium until something else comes up. Columbus is, our, is the national team's home. Well, it was fascinating to me in interviewing Bruce Arena for the 2001 USA-Mexico game. He said that the Federation actually wanted to put the game in L.A. to make money. That was Bruce's story, yeah, so yeah, keep yeah. that in yeah. mind. <laughs> but like, he, he wanted to play it in Columbus and felt like that would be a tougher environment for Mexico. U.S. wins that game in a very cold February night. Now, yeah. this is September 3rd, so this yeah. game in 05 was not nearly as difficult weather-wise. But by that point, the U.S. had been pretty successful against Mexico for a period of years, going back to that 2001 game, to the 2002 World Cup, where the U.S. eliminated Mexico. Earlier that year in 05, Mexico had beaten the U.S. 2-1 to in the Azteca, but actually the U.S. played pretty well in that game and and was doing really well in general heading into this game. The mere fact that the U.S. could have qualified with three games to spare, as you were saying, was an example of, of how well things were going for the U.S. team. Did you feel like you had gotten into the heads of the Mexican players a little bit as a team 
with the World Cup win and the the whole Columbus thing? Yeah, you could feel it. You know, we I don't know going back when it exactly started, but there was there was this run of uh, I want to say about ten games where we maybe only lost once of them, and we we felt we could beat them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we were confident. We felt we matched up with them well. We were uh, we were a physical team. We had the quality also to play with them. Uh, we had depth, uh, and you could sense when we played them that they were nervous about us they there was a tenseness about them they were chippy when they played us and we 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 did get into their heads it was very clear their leaders and players that were playing at big clubs the way they reacted you know you didn't see them playing like that with their club teams but they came in and played for their national team and and they quickly lost their cool and we were able to really frustrate them we were and i think you know i think to be very open that u.s is is always needs to be a team that's hard to beat first right. you know we're, we're rarely going to go out and, and outplay teams uh, Mexico is a very good team so I think our mindset in when we beat Mexico was about being hard to beat mm-hmm. uh, being tough defensively and we always felt we were going to get chances whether it was set pieces run a play counter attack and that was the game plan and I think credit to Bruce he brought a new mentality into the national team when he took over from from the first game um, you know, he challenged everybody in terms of thinking we can win games to expecting to win games. Mm-hmm. And Mexico was a game that we all of a sudden expected to win. Uh, even in the Azteca, that game early in the year, we were, I remember, um, we were frustrated. We were annoyed that we didn't we didn't pick up more because we didn't play that great in the first 30 minutes. But then it was an even game and we almost, mm-hmm. we almost were able to pull a point out of the game. So I think credit to Bruce and the coaching staff. I think everyone kind of bought into this that we we have nothing to fear we have enough quality and we felt at the time we were the best team in CONCACAF to be totally honest we thought it didn't matter who we played where we played them and the best thing about our approach to Mexico is that they never never ever in their history had anyone really stand up to them and it happened many years earlier I don't remember when it was it was sort of a tipping point yeah. where we beat them and we beat them again and we beat them again and that was it and 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 you could see the reaction back home. We also knew that they had so much pressure back home. Right. And the press, the media, you know, the gringos, we can't lose to them. How can you lose to them? All of it. So everything kind of, you know, really played into our favor. And, you know, we had really good experienced players who've been through so many games with Mexico. The young guys brought like a sort of new calmness and and, and coolness about the situation. You know, the guys mm-hmm. like Landon and Demarcus and Gooch was Bobby Convy, I think, was in the squad. And these guys, you know, were very relaxed about it as well. They kind of, it was very refreshing to see these younger players come in and, and almost expect to win. Yeah. Um, so you kind of put that all together. And it was, it was we had a really good squad and um, the spirit was really good in the team. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can just see, I love, I love coming out when we played in Mexico and we lined up always. And you could just see that they were they were overhyped. And yeah. when your team is overhyped, you can really take advantage of it. Interesting. I, early in this game, one of the lasting images that came out of this 2005 game is an interaction between Aguchi Anyewu and Harry Borghetti, the, <laughs> yeah. the great Mexican goal scorer. And Anyewu was a big guy yeah. and just was towering over Borghetti. And... So early on in the first 10 minutes, they get into a tangle 
and Borghetti turns around and and sort of tries to stare at Onyewu, and Yewu just looks, literally looking down. <laughs> yeah, he looked uh, down on everyone. <laughs> literally looking down, it just gives him a death stare. Yeah. And that became this kind of larger-than-life symbol of a lot of things, of, of, of kind of the U.S. in relation to Mexico at that point in time. The U.S. ends up winning the game. Were you aware of any of this stuff? Yeah, I did. I remember seeing it, and it it was the first of many stare-downs, I think, in that game in <laughs> duels. And, uh, you know, I think, again, Bruce told Gooch, you put this guy in your back pocket, eat him up, frustrate him. He's not faster than you. He's not stronger than you. He's not quicker than you. He shouldn't be at any balls in the air because Borghetti was a, a real clever player inside the 18. And it was a challenge to Gooch. And he took it. Um, he, was a, he was a beast, as everyone knows. And maybe that's when the, the old Gooch uh, <laughs> uh, chant from the, from the stands and from the supporters started. But he was, he was an animal back then. And, and uh, again, it was a good matchup for us. Mm-hmm. And it frustrated them. They didn't know what to do. Um, but, yeah, I think that just was kind of something that highlighted what we, what we believed in. It was one of our younger players. Mm-hmm. I remember as a captain, I wanted to make sure he kept his cool because I've been through enough of these games where they're always trying to do something. And I remember telling Gooch, make sure you don't cross the line and, yeah. and do something because they're also trying to antagonize you and just don't don't fall for it. They're right. really good at it. So I had the conversation before the game. I said it after at halftime. I said, <laughs> I said just be careful because if, if he's going to do anything, he's going to try to dive. He's going to try to get you to, to, you know, get a card, maybe a red card. And, you know, he really grew up that game. That was a, that was a moment. Uh, again, you remember moments when, when players, you always have that. You get an opportunity you do well in a big stage and you grow as a player and all of a sudden you you earn the trust of your teammates of the coaching staff and that that was a particular game where i think gooch stepped up and and uh you know started a good run for him and on the national team so you mentioned the halftime it was zero zero still at halftime in that game do you remember anything about what was said in the locker room well we we did i remember bruce talking about uh, it was a good half but to to really go at him it was just bruce's mentality you know it's it, it was he felt and and i remember and, and agree that we still were a little hesitant and he said let's go after them let's make sure we continue to pressure them let's make sure we go after them we're going to get opportunities but be a little bit more aggressive and i think it's normal sometimes the first 15 20 minutes a game a bit of a of a chess match but we do better and we specifically do better in CONCACAF when we are the aggressor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did when we came out. We scored our, our two goals, and but it was it was positive. You know, again we were we, we didn't give up a goal. We limited their chances. I remember being very organized and frustrating them, like I said before. And you know, it was all about getting that first goal, and we knew that it was going to come. We really did. We had firepower on the bench ready to come in. And if we could get through that first five, ten minutes and, and start well, that we, we would get chances. They needed also to, to try to win. Uh, right. So we, we were in a good position going into the second half. So you talked earlier about set pieces. Both goals come on set pieces. 53rd minute, free kick. Anyewu heads off the post. And Steve Ralston is in the right place at the right time, follows it in. I should have checked. Did you take that free kick? I don't remember. <laughs> we'll edit that I don't know if it was, me, it was either me or Landon. I'm telling you, that's, my memory's a little foggy on all these games I played. But uh, I don't know if it was me or Landon. I really don't. I remember the second goal that I was a part of that. Yes, one, I, I, I will break that up in one second. I like yeah. you. So you get the goal, and that's obviously the reward for a lot of hard work you guys have put in. But then, you know, five minutes later, U.S. comes back, 
This time the set piece is a corner kick. And it's one of the cooler plays I think we can recall in a big U.S. game. Do you want to lead me through it? Yeah, so it was interesting. We worked on it the day before in training at the stadium. We did a walkthrough of set pieces, as you always do, defensively, offensively, corner kicks, wide free kicks, and kind of the standard routine that most clubs, uh, most countries and teams do. So it was Landon, DeMarcus, and myself that were talking about it. Bruce had gave us the general sort of... um, uh, idea of playing short corners and looking to run in sort of a backdoor play, mm-hmm. whether it was Landon or Demarcus. So we ran it the day before against the the second team, mm-hmm. and it didn't come off. But we were able to adjust in reasons and talked about how we have to work on it and mm-hmm. make sure the detail on on the movements and when the pass happened. And basically, it Demarcus laid it off to to Landon and. It, and what we talked about the day before is like, Demarcus, at that moment, you got to be really, really kind of like, you're not getting the ball. You got to kind of play fake it. Play fake it. Yeah. <laughs> and then what Landon did, and I stayed really deep and then came into the play a little bit later. Landon played it to me, and Demarcus, as quick as he is, the second the ball was rolling, I also, we talked about it. I said to Landon, I said, this ball has to come at the right pace because I'm either doing two things I'm either going to find Demarcus. Three things, actually. Find DeMarcus, get it back out to you to go 1v1, or hit a one-time ball to the back post. Mm. And the second Landon gave me a really good pass, I, in my mind, I remember I could do all three things. Mm-hmm. But the moment DeMarcus, being as quick as he is, he did a back door. I saw the gap wide open, and I was able to play him in his stride. He took a touch and finished. And it was good. We deceived them. Um, again, we all know how important set pieces are. But it was, it was good because you, you, you have set plays and set pieces that you, you go through. But you also have to be able to adjust on the fly because yeah. the other team might see it. you got to have sort of a, a plan B and a plan C if the first one doesn't work. So uh, I do remember it the day before we got together, Landon, DeMarcus, and we just talked about it. We said, if this happens, I may go back out to you. I may put it in the back post. But I said... DeMarcus, if you just delay a little bit and you go, it's so on. Mm -hmm. And what we did notice, and again, credit to the coaching staff, is that they were very vulnerable on set pieces, Mm -hmm. not just because we were bigger and stronger and had height, but they seemed to tune off on on set pieces. Mm -hmm. And we felt that if we could drag them out, Mm -hmm. that one of their players, and this would happen, he fell asleep on the backdoor cut from from DeMarcus. And and then he really did the rest. He took a great touch with his right foot and finished in the back post with his left and and it was great you know we just knew we were one step closer to the world cup and also a smart run to stay on side so yeah you know, if you actually followed beasley's path yeah. amazing ball you gave him like for him to get to be on side he had to move pretty quickly yeah from the short corner piece. yeah he has to curl he had to curl and 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 stay on side because most teams and they did it is the second the second you play short the team can just start pushing out and so he had to do a really good job as well to stay on, and he kind of curls up and mm-hmm. then and then bends his run uh, really well, and it was perfect, really well executed, and everything everything has to work. I mean, from the way they set it up, they have to drag players out. Landon has to give me a good ball. If it's too hard, if it's too soft, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So he made a good pass, and you know I made the pass to Demarcus, and it was great. It was. Uh, I remember when you have something like that that you work on so much, um, and you work in, in training and, and prepare for it, and then when it comes off, it's so rewarding. I think mm-hmm. for everybody involved, and it was one of those I think special moments. And like I said before, once we got that second goal. Mm-hmm. We celebrated and we, we kind of knew. We knew we were just, uh, again, totally in their heads. 
the you know the coach had to react, started making some changes. I remember them starting to throw more numbers forward, and uh, I do remember we should have scored more. But I guess the the ghost of Dos Zero had to stay. Well, that was my <laughs> next question: is in watching this game again, it's so funny to me because Dos Zero is such a common. You know, result now five times yeah, against Mexico amazing. that U.S. soccer has trademarked the phrase dos acero. <laughs> and yet in many of these games, the U.S. blew chances late to make it 3 nothing. And in yeah. this one, there was that case again where Beasley has a breakaway yeah. in injury time. At the end of the game, yeah. And yeah. somehow I think I played. It. I think I played it to him also. <laughs> somehow <laughs> yeah. botches it. it must, that's what I mean. That's why I even laugh now. And I, I go into these games, I'm like, hopefully the team doesn't feel they have to win 2-0. And, and now the pressure of expecting to win is... But uh, it, it is. It's incredible. From, of course, also keeping a clean sheet against Mexico yeah. and is, is, is tough. You know, they have a lot of great attacking players. But I do remember that game that we had chances. So hopefully... Teresa Zero starts from this game on. <laughs> you, you would think, but you yeah. know, Clint Dempsey missed an injury time penalty in 2013 that would have made it. There you Teresa go. There Zero. you go. Yeah. You qualified for the World Cup that night. How special was that moment? Is there anything in particular you remember from the, those celebrations? Yeah, I think again to to get back and to have another World Cup. Uh, I think I think sometimes fans and and people just expect it to be a formality, and it's never the case because so much hard work goes into it. You know, we celebrated pretty hard that night, as <laughs> as you'd expect. Yeah. Um, you know, to get a chance to go back to a World Cup again with our fans, with U.S. soccer, everybody, and then you know, I I had to get on a plane the next day back to Europe, so mm-hmm. back back to playing. But incredible feeling. You know, it's just a, a culmination of so much work, uh, so many players sacrificing, and you know, I always think that as well when you're in those situations that there's a squad that qualifies you that never is a squad that goes to the world cup. Yeah. And so there's guys as a captain, you know, I've, I've obviously was confident that I'd be going to the world cup, but you think you look around the room and you know, you, you remember certain guys and I don't off the top of my head, but you think, is he going to make the world cup team? Because you know, there's other guys either suspended or injuries and just other guys come out of nowhere sometimes. And so it's, uh, it's another thing, you know, it's, it's, it's only this group that experienced it. And, and, and so you always think of those things like, man, it's it, you hope everyone can go to the World Cup, but this is not how it works. So it's a, it's a certain group that experience that. And yeah. then it's a different group that goes on to another game and another tournament and another World Cup experience. So, you know, I always always kind of feel for guys who don't make make it, you know, it's, well, it's in tough. In particular, I think of 05, uh, the night the U.S. clinched, Steve Ralston scores a goal. That's exactly. Yeah. 2009, yeah. Connor Casey has a big game the night the U.S. qualifies, doesn't yeah. make the World Cup team. Yeah. In 2013, Landon Donovan scores against Mexico in the yeah. qualification. Just guys like Brad Evans, you know, and yeah. you know, a bunch of different guys that like play huge roles in the in the you know they're they're there fighting for the for the team and yeah. they often get uh, yeah forgotten you know but from from players standpoint you don't forget them because they gave everything and you know the, uh, Steve is the perfect example Steve is a guy who missed out on, on playing in a World Cup and he scored that night and. You know, he'll go down always as, you know, a guy who scored in a, in a Dosa Zero game and an important game, a qualifying game. So that's the kind of thing, you know, and, and but nobody, no one's thinking about that in terms of at the end, he's just as happy as anybody else, experience mm-hmm. it. But just the the excitement of, I remember like, whew, it's, it's, it's over early. You know, yeah. we qualified early. We're not going down to the last game. We're not yeah. needing results. And I remember for, oh, in 01, 
we won, but another result went our way, right. and then all of a sudden we started celebrating. It was a little <laughs> bit different. We knew that if we won that night, we were in, and mm-hmm. you know, so it was a real focus to get the job done. And and it was also important because I think Bruce didn't want to say it, but of course he was able to use the next game to give some other guys right. some experience in, in playing in hostile environments who still needed points to qualify. So uh, it was a win-win for everyone that night. Claudia Urena, thanks for talking to the podcast. Thank you, Grant. Lots of fun. The 2009 USA-Mexico game kicked off the hexagonal in a rainy Columbus. But, as Michael Bradley explains, the result was the same, 2-0. The U.S. starting lineup for 2009, Tim Howard, Frankie Haydock, Aguchi Anyewu, Carlos Bocanegra, Heath Pierce, Clint Dempsey, Michael Bradley, Sasha Kleshton, Demarcus Beasley, Landon Donovan, and Brian Ching. Thanks for joining me, Michael. No problem. Thanks for having me. So we're focusing on 2009. Uh, you were 21 years old then. You scored both goals in this game, and I want to talk about the game itself in a second. But uh, just as far as the context of things heading into this game, this was the first game of the hexagonal uh, in 2009, and that's happened a couple of times in this rivalry back in 2001, uh, 2009. It's happening again in 2016. And I wanted to start by asking, when USA-Mexico in Columbus is the first game of the Hex, does that add any element to it, or how are you approaching it as the first game of this tournament? Um, there, there's two distinct ways to, to look at it. The first is obviously that um, it's the first game of the Hex, and, and you want to get off to the best possible start. Obviously, uh, you, we've... We've been through the semifinal round of qualifying, and now um, as we we build into this this last phase, you wanna you wanna feel like you are starting off on the best possible foot, and, and especially at home, you wanna feel like you're uh, you're taking full points. The other way to look at it is that it's U.S. Mexico, and that quite honestly, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of game it is, it's gonna be different, it's gonna be special, and so it's. Yeah, it, it there's a lot that goes into these games. You know, I, I've said many, many times, U.S. Mexico is is there's nothing like it. You know, the the pressure, the the atmosphere, the 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 hype, all the the build up, um, it it comes together in in a really special way. You know, there there's history. There is. There's respect. There's also healthy amounts of of uh, dislike, and and so you know it, it's um, these are special games, and so I think um, you know no matter when no matter when they come, um, these are these are the games that you live to play in. This 2009 World Cup qualifier against Mexico is taking place in Columbus. It was the third time the U.S. had played Mexico in Columbus for a qualifier. We're not far now from the fifth time. Uh, can you imagine this USA-Mexico World Cup qualifier in a location other than Columbus? For the time being, no. There's no need to move it. Obviously, we are still a, a relatively young country in terms of our our football history um, but obviously playing in Columbus against Mexico there is history and there is a, a real aura to playing in that stadium and so at, at the moment um, I don't think anybody in their right mind is is imagining um, US Mexico anywhere else obviously you know 
down the road. You, you never know what happens. But right now, when when we play Mexico in in, in World Cup qualifying, there's only there's only one place to play. This 2009 game did take place on February 11th. It wasn't as cold as it might have been at that time of year. It was rainy that night. What do you remember from the the opening parts of this game? Um, you know, I, I actually had the chance uh, a few weeks ago um, for for something else to to sit down with Sasha Kleshin and actually watch a little bit of the game. And so, the thing that stuck out right away was the the pace of the game. We felt like on a night like that, a cool wet night at home, we wanted to get after them, and we didn't want to let them play their way into the game, get a rhythm, start to be able to spread themselves out and, and, and pass and circulate the ball and, and do the things that ultimately they are good at and they want to do. And, and from the beginning, we were, we were aggressive. We stepped up, we pressed, we, we you know, the, the first guy closed down hard, the next guy was always ready. And, and ultimately, they were n- never able to really play their way into the game. And Tim Howard does make a a good early save on Giovanni Dos Santos. And your first goal comes really toward the end of the first half. What led to that? Your recollections of it? Yeah, as you said, Timmy Timmy made a good save early on. You know, that that was a little bit of a broken play where, you know, on a early on in a game the balls, you know, teams are still trying to to find their way into the game and a ball, you know, bounces maybe a little unluckily. You know, Dos Santos has a has a decent chance and Timmy makes a great save. You know, I thought like I said, our our ability to our ability and commitment to stepping up and closing them down and making the game very difficult for them, um, and, and playing at a really high tempo that quite honestly made them uncomfortable. Um, that part was very good. At the end of the first half I I think we had a little. We made a little move down the right hand side, and and I think Frankie Haydick, you know, ran ran forward uh, in a really strong way and got to the end line and tried to cross a ball that went out for a corner, and obviously then, you know, set pieces, especially with that team, uh, with that group of players that we had at the time, were always something that we were we were dangerous on, um, and it was it was a good ball. It got headed back across, and, and ultimately it just it, it came down to me you know, being in the right place at the right time and, and trying to react quickly and, and smash it in. Do you remember anything about that halftime, what was said? Not specifically. Um, I can imagine that the, the message was to keep going. It was to not let up in any way because, again, when, when you go back and watch good portions of that first half, they found no rhythm. You know, their key attacking players struggled to, to find the game. Um, when they did find find a little bit of space, we were cl- quick to close them down. Um, and it was, it was exactly the type of game that we wanted to make it. Now, about 20 minutes or so into the second half, Mexico goes down a man. And Rafa Marquez is a guy with tremendous experience in European soccer. Um, and yet, for some reason over the years, he's had some rash decisions in games against the U.S., and this was another one where he crashed into Tim Howard in the box, uh, straight red card. Um, 
what do you remember from that? And, and are you surprised at all that a guy with Marquez's experience would have this happen again? Um, look, the, these games bring out real emotion. They bring out, the, you know, at times the best and the worst of players and, and of each team. And obviously it had been a frustrating night for them. And, and um, you know, for whatever reason, he, uh, he, he lost it for, for a second. Um, I, I remember him jumping for, jumping for a header with Timmy, and and you know going in and away with his studs up. That was uh, was was dirty, um, and I think there were a few of us who who were close by and who saw it right away. And uh, again, in, in in moments like that, the emotion takes over. And how did that change the rest of the game? Yeah, I mean, anytime you go up, uh, you're up a guy and up a goal, you have to close out the game. You have to find a way to make sure that you uh, you walk off the field with all three points. And, you know, I I, I think, again, we continued to um, close them down to, to collectively make the game very difficult for them. Um, we were, we reacted quicker, we closed down harder, we were... Um, first to every loose ball, uh, and and again they just had a night where it was uh, very difficult to play. Ninety second minute, you get the second goal. What do you remember from that play? Yeah, we had made a few subs. Uh, Josie had come on. Uh, Josie uh, made a very good play around midfield to to you know maybe turn and hold on to a ball. Uh, and, and Carlos Salcido came in very hard and very late uh, on him, but Josie had done had done well to to shove it to Landon, who was kind of moving forward. And Landon did a really good job of now you know moving with the ball forward, but under control because at a certain point, then given that Josie had had given it to him, real numbers forward. Um, it was the end of the game. There was no need for us to be flying forward. And so Landon was able to kind of just put the brakes on, and and I, um, you know, had started pretty deep, but just tried to kind of move with him to to so that ultimately I could be a, an option, an outlet if he needed it. And when he turned, when he turned back, then he played me a ball, and I took you know moving forward, I took a a, a touch forward, and again we had no real numbers, and so it was one of these plays where now you take a. You take a good touch and, and set it down for yourself, and you're ready to to see if you can hit the type of ball that is going to make the the keeper have to to come up with a really good save. You want to hit the target. You want to, you know, at, at that point, you want to you want to hit a shot that again forces him to come up with something uh, something good. U.S. wins two nothing in this game, and I'm curious in terms of. You talk about the emotions, the intensity of the USA-Mexico rivalry. You play a lot of games as a professional player. Does it feel any different at the end of a USA-Mexico game because of those reasons we just talked about than at the end of another regular type of game? Um, it's a good question. You know, there it depends on the game. You know, there is there's no doubt that the the satisfaction. Um, and the the emotion after a win against Mexico is is different. Um, it can also be relief in some moments, you know, where where again the the build up to these games is so is so unique. Um, you know, the, it, they get talked about, they get written about, 
they get you know played over and over in your mind hundreds of times before the game even starts and so if you and and that's not even taking into account the actual 90 minutes and so depending then on how the game goes on what it's like uh, again it can be uh, it can be a, a wide range of emotion when the U.S. has beaten Mexico, we often see the Mexican players not wanting to shake hands, not wanting to trade jerseys. How do you feel about that in terms of, I guess, sportsmanship, things like that? It is what it is, you know. Um, the reality is that you shake hands before the game, you know, and, and while in some games, um, you know, that things end and you... you uh, you congratulate the other team. You shake hands with the other team, and some, you know, certain guys like to trade jerseys. You know, when uh, I get it, when you're on the losing, uh, when you're on the losing end of a big game like that, you want to get off the field. And so, um, I don't take that as any uh, as any slight. You know, um, I think when push comes to shove, they d- deep down they have respect for us. They know we're a good team. They know we have good players. They know what we're all about. And you know, I that that doesn't bother me in any way. Just looking at 2009, this was the first big game of what turned out to be a big year. At the Confederations Cup, the U.S. would go on to beat Spain uh, and and play against Brazil in the final 3-2 game. The U.S. would go on to qualify for the 2010 World Cup and win the hexagonal. What did this Mexico-U.S. game to kick off 2009, did that help in any way to, to set up what would become a very memorable year? Yeah, um, I think whether we, we realized it at the time or not, you when you win big games, you set the right tone and there's confidence and there's energy and there is, you know, it's reward for all of the work that gets put in on a daily basis and it's reassurance that you are on the right path. And so I think, you know, a big win at the beginning of that year against Mexico set us up in a in a big way for for the year ahead. Good stuff, Michael. Thank you so much for joining the Planet Football Podcast. No problem, Grant. The 2013 USA-Mexico game in Columbus saw Mexico in a tailspin and the U.S. in a position to clinch a berth in World Cup 2014. Landon Donovan joins me to talk about the night he scored his final goal in a U.S. uniform. The U.S. starting lineup for 2013 Tim Howard, Fabian Johnson, Clarence Goodson, Omar Gonzalez, Demarcus Beasley, Jermaine Jones, Kyle Beckerman, Alejandro Bedoya, Clint Dempsey, Landon Donovan, and Eddie Johnson. Landon, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Grant. Thank you. So we're going to focus on 2013 here. I know you played in lots of Dos Acero games between the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, We could have picked any one of them for you. Uh, We're focusing on 2013. I'll set the scene very quickly here. Mexico really on the ropes to qualify for that World Cup. Absolutely insane. They ended up being saved by the U.S. uh, later that week by the the Graham Zussi goal against Panama and ended up going to the World Cup. And, you know, they were going through Mexico, all these coaching changes heading into this game against the U.S., the U.S., meanwhile, had a chance to qualify for Brazil 2014 on this night in Columbus in 2013. I just want to start, I guess, by asking what your memories were heading into this game and, and you know, how you approached a game, a qualifier against Mexico like this. 
It seemed like the stars had kind of all aligned because this was the second to last game in our qualifying and we knew that if we won there was a chance that we would qualify that night and then when you couple that with playing Mexico and knowing that potentially you winning could also prohibit them from going it was a pretty charged atmosphere and a pretty special night to be a part of. Now when it comes to playing Mexico in particular you always had a history of success uh, in, in your games against Mexico. Did you get a special charge from, from playing against them? You know, did you approach it any differently than you approach playing against different teams? Well, I think I understood early on the importance of it. For whatever reason, timing-wise, that generation of players really started to relish the rivalry you know, I don't know if it exactly started with my first game against Mexico or coincided maybe, but it seemed that way. And it seemed like for the first time, we really believed that we could beat them. And because of that, it this incredible rivalry developed and just always felt a little different and a little more special. And I certainly always looked up to it, and I think our players did too. As far as Columbus is concerned... It's kind of a random place to become this house of horrors for Mexico over the years. What is it about Columbus and that stadium environment that has made it so difficult for Mexico against the U.S.? I think what happened is Columbus was the first soccer-specific stadium in this country. So by default, it became our home field. And I think over the years, fans realized that they could make this a real home field environment. For us as players... It was an incredible blessing because everywhere else we played against Mexico and a number of other teams, we were always the away team. And there was always more fans of the other team or Mexico than there were of us. So our one qualifier that we knew 100% would be pro-American was if we played anybody in Columbus, but especially Mexico in Columbus. So it, it had that feel. The fans felt it. You could always tell. We always felt it, and inevitably, it seemed like the games were always in January or February or November or September or December or October, and the games were cold and difficult for the Mexicans, and we really thrived in that environment. So here we are in 2013. Mexico comes into this game struggling, and the first half was actually pretty even. Uh, it ends up going into halftime 0-0. What do you recall about the first half in particular? Actually, I, I remember that first half well, and that was the first time in a very long time that we played Mexico at home, and especially in Columbus, that we realized that they actually, you could see in them that they believed they could win the game. And their backs were against the wall. They absolutely had to win the game to try to ease their qualifying woes. And we sensed it. And I remember in the first half, they were much more offensive. They were much more comfortable going forward than they ever had been in a game like that. Generally, in those games, we applied all the pressure. So it was a little nervy at halftime. And we knew that it was a game that was going to take one or two special plays to, to change it. Do you remember anything in particular being said at halftime by anyone in the locker room? 
I don't. Um, I I just sensed it within myself, and I sensed it within the team that that mm. this was a little bit different, and that we we needed to be careful, or else we were going to lose this game. Okay, so Eddie Johnson comes up big with a header on uh, your corner kick early in the second half. What do you remember from it? I remember us starting to apply a little bit of pressure and sort of turning the screw a little bit. And we always knew in these games that set pieces were a big factor and that we would have significant advantages over them on set pieces. Obviously, that night we had Clarence Goodson playing, Omar Gonzalez, Dempsey, who's really good in the air, Jermaine Jones, Eddie on the field. So we knew that set pieces could be a big factor in the game. And from my standpoint, always in a situation like that where you have an advantage height-wise and and in aerial quality is make sure you put the ball in a place where your guys can go get it. And I think our guys in that moment were just waiting for the opportunity to go make a play. Okay. I went back, actually, and looked through what I had written about this game afterward being on site. And in the post-game, some of the U.S. players said that they visibly saw the Mexican mentality start to suffer after the first U.S. goal. Did you see anything like that? Absolutely. And listen, they had been coming to Columbus for so many years, every time losing and losing 2-0 generally. Until the goal comes, they really believe that they can win the game. But once the goal came, you could see that it absolutely broke their back. And we kind of felt like it was only a matter of time until we got the second or more. And the second comes. And it comes from you. A nice play by Mix Discarude in tight space. Uh, he then passes it. It goes across the goal mouth. And you're on the far post. Yeah, and it's that goal was so indicative of everything that Dempsey is so good at and why he's so valuable to a team the the play mix made was terrific and it was inventive and creative and he makes a great play and if you think about the goal if clint doesn't make the run he makes then it's easily cleared out by the mexicans but clint was doing what he does well and he's putting himself in front of the goal and for me it was trying to be in a position where if the ball got through or if it got shot and saved, if it got deflected, that I was in a position to get on the end of it. And fortunately for us, you know, Clint just got a tiny nick, which I think actually helped it get past the Mexican defender's foot. I had to react a little. It wasn't my, you know, cleanest or or easiest or sharpest finish ever, but um, I was so close and we had been put in such a good position that it then became uh, inevitable that it was going to hit the net. Does it ever get tired scoring against Mexico? <laughs> no. I mean, it was always fun because the situation always, the, the atmosphere around it always made it fun because you're playing Mexico. But really, even more so playing in Columbus. And that night, you, there's like probably 10 or 15 nights in my career, night games, that I really, really remember. There was just a special feeling in the air. It was like, the, you know, the fall weather comes about daylight savings comes 
it gets dark earlier. The crowd has a special feeling to it. There's a little more excitement, more energy. And those games were always so special to be a part of, and that game was part of it. So when you scored, the place just erupted. And uh, it's such a satisfying feeling to do it there against Mexico, in Columbus, in a World Cup qualifier that could potentially send us through to the World Cup. All of it came together perfectly, and it was an incredible feeling. So toward the end of the game, this ends up being in like the 94th, 95th minute, Dempsey wins a penalty for the U.S. And Dempsey takes the spot kick, and he misses it. And... A question for you. With all the Dos Acero games over the years, four of them by now, in Columbus, do you think he missed that penalty on purpose <laughs> to keep the Dos Acero? No, he absolutely did not, but the world has a weird way of working out. And, you know, as much as I'm sure Clint was disappointed, I think there was some ironic clarity in all of that that it ended 2-0 and not 3-0 and <laughs> probably you know I, I, probably the only time in history that every Mexican fan wishes he would have scored so they didn't have to hear Dos Acero again <laughs> so you win the game and you still have to wait to find out if you've qualified for the World Cup and so you have this kind of odd surreal situation I was there I was on the field at this point you, the team, come back out on the field and watch on the video screen the Honduras-Panama game that's taking place, and the fans are still there in the stadium, and finally the result comes, and the U.S. is qualified for the World Cup, and the champagne comes. What specific things do you remember from that situation? It, re it was really weird. We, we wanted to celebrate the win, but we couldn't celebrate qualifying because we didn't know what was going to happen in the Honduras Panama game. So I remember us, you know, cheering the crowd and saying thank yous and that, but then we went back in the locker room and we had the TV on in the locker room and I just remember everybody sitting on the floor watching the game as I think we did see a few of the goals get scored. And then it was near the end of the game, and I don't remember the exact scenario. I don't know if Panama had to win or I think it was Panama had to win and they weren't. And it became kind of inevitable that it was going to happen. So then we were able to sort of filter outside and watch the last few minutes, I think in the tunnel with the crowd. And then credit to everybody who stayed and, and made time to celebrate with us because then it became a really really special night so what was an incredible night already became a truly memorable night for everybody are there any other kind of good stories from that night that you remember that might have been away from public view i have this image and i'm i honestly i don't remember who it is somebody on our team was chugging a beer with the crowd <laughs> at the end of the game and I want to say maybe it was Guzan but I have this very vivid memory of everyone standing there and I think it was Guzan if I remember correctly who toasted the crowd and just chugged a beer in front of him and it's one of those moments where you know in sports we're always supposed to be pretty 
civil and and smart about what we do especially in public but everyone was just so excited that we are going to the world cup and i can imagine that so many of the fans there had probably already booked tickets and were excited to go too so it was just this moment where everyone could let go and really enjoy and it was just a really cool vivid picture that i always have in my head lastly you had this nickname of the executioner that you got over the years from just scoring a lot against Mexico, and you actually earned the respect of Mexican fans who may have said horrible things to you in the stadium and thrown things at you in the Azteca, but would always, when I would talk to them, say that deep down they had a respect for you as a player that uh, that you had earned over the years. The fact that your last international goal for the U.S. came against Mexico in this game, obviously you didn't know that would be the case at the time. Now that you do know the case, looking back, do you have additional thoughts? Does, it, does that stick out to you in any special way because of that? Yes, and it was. I'm a firm believer that everything's happening the way it's supposed to, and I think what most people don't know is my first ever well my first goal with the national team was against mexico and my last goal with the the national team was against mexico but also my first goal as an under 17 national team player was against mexico so there was some beautiful symmetry in all of that and um i i don't think there's any doubt that it was all happening the way it was supposed to landon donovan thanks for joining the planet football podcast my pleasure grant thank you Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Bruce Arena, Brian McBride, Claudio Reyna, Michael Bradley, and Landon Donovan. I'd also like to thank everyone at Digital Media, including special production work for this episode by Sports Illustrated's Alexander Abnos. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Bob Bradley, Gary Lineker, David Villa, and Thomas Mueller. You can subscribe to, like, and review the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.